I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Utah's source for exclusive access and insights behind the news. Here's the opinion page editor of the Deseret News, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back, everyone. Great to be with you today. And we're going to keep storming along here in the fastest 60 minutes of radio as we really try to help you divide the rage from the reason and elevate the conversation, connect the dots, and help all of this make a little bit more sense to us. And uh, obviously, there's a lot going on in Washington, D.C. today, uh, a lot of posturing, uh, a lot of name-calling, finger-pointing, shoulder-shrugging, uh, and the list goes on. Uh, whenever I get to this point, knowing that something needs to be done, knowing there is a uh, congressional recess scheduled to start uh, in 24 hours, uh, this is when I go I go to the bench, I call in the big gun, and it's time for James Walner. Uh, James Walner is the uh, resident uh, senior fellow of governance at the R Street Institute and uh, the most knowledgeable man on the Senate of the United States that I know. Uh, James, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, how's how's COVID uh, treating uh, you and the family uh, back there in D.C.? We've been so incredibly fortunate and blessed and lucky to have been spared any direct impact or um, encounter with COVID. I know that millions of Americans have not been as lucky as we have. Yeah. We've been fortunate thus far. So, you know, I continue to... To, to appreciate that and, and hope that we can get through this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we know there's uh, uh, another round of stimulus in the offing. Uh, seems like we're trillions of dollars apart. Uh, give us uh, give us your assessment of where do you think we are and uh, what do you project rolling into the uh, into the weekend here? Well, unfortunately, this is pretty much how Washington deals with any major crisis these days, which is no one really has a clue what's going on. You're on the outside looking in. It's very opaque. It's very unclear who the pivotal players are, uh, where the decisions are being made, what those decisions are, and who's really responsible for them if you want to hold them accountable once those decisions have been made. And that's really unfortunate, especially on something as, as consequential and monumental as this as latest relief package. But right now you have uh, the Senate and the House preparing to leave town. Leadership and the, and the White House are, are conducting negotiations behind closed doors. Uh, they still appear to be far apart, but that could change at any minute. Uh, I, I think it's so fascinating to watch. As you say, so many are gearing up to to leave town. We we always know that the uh, the jet fumes from Reagan are the are the best elixir and uh, lubricant to to get things done. Uh, but but you really point out, I think one of the most important challenges we face in all of this is that one, we don't know who's really going on, what who's really in charge, or who's really influencing what. 
But but the bigger point that you made there, James, that there's no one to be held accountable uh, for the results in the end. That's absolutely right. If there's no deal, both sides are going to point their fingers and call names, and it's going to be unclear who really is ultimately responsible for walking away from a bargain. If there is a deal, all sides will pretty much throw up their hands and shrug and say, look, it is the best we can do. I'm not happy with the bargain. Or if you're trying to convince other people that you fought as hard as you can to get something and you settled and compromised, the American people have no way of knowing if that's true because they haven't seen you do it. Right. Know how hard you really fought. So I, you know, if there is a deal, I predict that it's going to be upsetting to pretty much uh, to to all to everyone. Yeah. Uh, uh, and talk to us for just a, a brief second on uh, the president. Of course, is is saying, "Hey, if Congress can't get it done, uh, I'll just do it by executive order for the short term." Uh, we know there's lots of uh, ramifications, and I, I'm not even quite sure where the president will get his power on this one. But uh, what does it look like in terms of? extending some of those benefits, whether it's the uh, non-eviction or extending some of the unemployment benefits. Uh, What does that look like in the form of an executive order? Yeah, right now, the unemployment benefit extension uh, for federal unemployment benefits, they lapse at $600 extra money for unemployed Americans. Right now, Republicans are offering 400. Democrats are demanding 600. The president may be in a bid to try to move those negotiations along, has threatened or promised to, to issue an executive order saying, I'll just extend them at 600. And the, the eviction moratorium that you mentioned is another thing that he's insisted that he has the power to do. But you're right. It's unclear. I mean, this is this is a legislative authority. And right now that authority has lapsed and the Constitution doesn't give the president the power to make laws. It only gives the president the power to implement laws. So I, I'm with you. I, I'm not sure where the president would get this power uh, to do this and whether or not he actually intends on doing it or if he's just uh, bluffing to see if the Democrats will ultimately um, go along with them. Yeah, and I think I think the other uh, interesting test in this is if the president does do this by executive order, uh, how many in Congress uh, will maybe feign a little bit of outrage but then kind of shrug their shoulders and say, you know, dodge the bullet. I don't have to be accountable for that one either. Right. It really puts the Democrats in an interesting position because they're in a situation where the president will have done something that they wanted done, but – by executive order using dubious constitutional authority, and of course they're not big fans of the president. It will put conservative Republicans in an interesting position who do support the president but don't necessarily want the policy to be implemented via executive order unconstitutionally or via legislative power in Congress. So it will put lots of people in Washington in a very interesting uh, position if this does in fact happen. But but the bigger point is why do we even have a Congress at that point? Right. Yeah. The president can can make law via executive order. It seems that the Congress is kind of a waste at this point. So what's the point? Yeah, uh, and I think that's so uh, so critical. I know uh, our good friend Yuval Levin has been uh, opining on on this broken Congress uh, to a, to a new level. I think we've always felt there's been problems and challenges, and uh, there's always uh, kind of the flaws and and the challenges. But uh, it does seem more broken than normal. Uh, and there is the the ultimate question: Why you know do we have a Congress? Uh, if Congress can never do anything and so they continue to abdicate uh, that authority and responsibility, uh, kind of uh, getting themselves out of the way and their own reelect uh, and just passing everything on to the executive branch. That's true. But the good news is, and I always like to be an optimist here, and I think your listeners should be optimistic about this, the power still lies with Congress. It is Congress's decision to abdicate its responsibility, and it's Congress's decision to take that back. And Congress is the part of the federal government that is most 
directly accountable to the American people, to their constituents. And the second voters decide they don't like what's happening, then they can change it by demanding that their elected representatives in the House and Senate act differently. And once that happens, everything will go back to normal. And yes, it will look dysfunctional. And yes, everybody will be unhappy at times. But that's just the way politics works. Yeah. But the deeper institutional problems will not be there. And, and I, this is not something that is beyond our power to solve and to solve overnight if we want to. Yeah, and I think that is the, the important point, that, that optimism comes from the fact that it, it is – uh, and it's also the challenge, too, because it is up to we the people uh, to do this. Uh, we know we're uh, not that far off from the first Tuesday of November. Uh, we're actually only four weeks away from the first votes being cast. North Carolina will send out their uh, by mail uh, ballots uh, on the 4th of September. Uh, so we are going to be into voting very, very quickly. And I think that cause for optimism has to not only begin with the fact that it's in the hands of the people, but then we, the people, actually have to assert that right. Uh, just the way Congress is abdicating their rights and, and power and authority, uh, we need to make sure we claim it uh, as citizens. And that's right. And to call and to pick up the phone, even between elections and after you cast your ballots or even before, and communicate to your representatives what you want them to do. This COVID package is a great example. I, I am fully convinced, and I'm sure you are as well, that if the Senate would put a bill on the floor and let senators offer um, amendments to that bill, that it would be cleared in a day. It would be cleared in a day. I mean, I'm not sure that the policies I would support would necessarily prevail. They may not. The Constitution wasn't designed to make me happy all the time. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, and, but that's, it's remarkable. And I think if, if the constituents will communicate this to their senators and to their House members, that this is what they want them to do. They want them to take ownership of the legislation, and they want them to take ownership of what comes out of Washington instead of leaving it to their leaders, then they'll have to do that, or they'll be risking their own seats. Yeah, love that. Great insight, as always. James Walner from uh, the R Street Institute. Uh, Always appreciate it, and uh, we'll have you back. We'll see what it looks like uh, next week in terms of where we go next. Uh, but, James, thanks again for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. All right, we'll go ahead step aside. Uh, final break. Uh, when we come back today, we're going to talk about a, a concept called moral imagination. Moral imagination. Find out what it is next. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 